Welcome back to another episode of the Transform Your Life podcast. I'm Angela Hauk, founder of the international online coaching business, Team Ange. I'm an expert in building muscle and losing fat, a natural figure and fitness pro athlete with the UFE, and a lover of everything personal development. I'm a mom, a businesswoman. Most days, I just feel like a hot mess trying to keep it all together. I spent the first two decades of my life overweight, tired, hating vegetables, and living off Pepsi. I got sick and tired of feeling tired every day and decided to transform my life. This fitness and nutrition podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering listeners on all things training, nutrition, and personal development. I'm on a mission to help you improve your body, achieve your goals, live a confident and fulfilled life stepping into your full potential. So let's help you transform physically and mentally to a person that's been hiding underneath all along. Let's do it. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to today's episode. Now, for today's episode, I have Richard Moss, who I'm having a really beautiful conversation with. And what we talk about is what he calls inside-out healing. So this very wise soul talks all about the roots of emotional suffering and really what human potential looks like in terms of growth and healing. So Richard, really, he had his origins as a practicing medical doctor, but then he had a spiritual experience that really awakened him to the multidimensional nature of human consciousness. So in today's conversation, we really dive into how we are able to create conscious relationships with the people in our lives. We also talk about the ego and how to dissolve it to connect to source. We talk about how to live more consistently in the now so that we can truly break free from the emotional suffering that holds us back from really getting to where we want to go. We talk about the difference between emotions, versus feelings, and how we can approach the process of dream interpretation. We talk all about the soul's yearning to awaken and grow, and really how we can approach life from a perspective that was really refreshing for me to hear about from Richard. He had a lot of really powerful points and a lot of really powerful perspectives that can really help us when it comes to ongoing personal growth. I really hope you guys enjoyed today's episode, although it is not necessarily about the body. I think the mind and the soul is just as important as taking care of our body. So let's get into today's conversation, my chat with Richard Moss. Hey, Richard, how are you? Hello, Angela. I'm actually excellent. Wonderful, Um, wonderful. Are we in the same time zone? I'm in uh, mountain time. I'm in Boulder, Colorado. Where are you? Okay, Uh, close to Toronto, Canada. Oh, excellent. My my wife is from the Toronto area. Okay, okay. Right in Toronto or kind of around there? She grew up just outside of Toronto. Okay, um, nice. Yeah, I actually live in, in Waterloo, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but, but it's Sounds about a, familiar. It sounds yeah. familiar. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to have today's conversation, and I'm really looking forward to diving into all of your areas of expertise. Wonderful. All right, so let's just kick things off with you telling our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you believe your purpose is here on this earth. Uh-huh. Well, I, I thought you would probably ask me that. So um, my purpose here on earth is is to progressively develop ever deeper understanding of who I am as, as a conscious being and to share that, to share that infinite journey, that infinite play 
with others. I had a background in medicine. I was a doctor for a while, did some emergency room medicine and hospital medicine, and left that in my very late 20s and um, began down a different, different journey, a path of recognizing that most of our suffering is coming from what our minds do to us, and only secondarily what we actually experience in our bodies, even though that can be profound. And as a doctor, I certainly understand that. So my mission in life is to help people lift in consciousness, find their way into what I would call heart intelligence, and maybe really come to understand what we human beings are really here for, which I believe is to learn to love love and learn to love love with each other and to use our scientific minds to understand the nature of the nature of nature, the nature of our of life on our planet and of our planet, so that we can in fact be consciously obedient to nature, consciously terraform this planet with nature, which is not what we're doing now. We're threatening the very ecosystem that we need for ourselves. And at the root of that are the, the problems of lack of self-awareness and fear and self-interest. And uh, I've been working with people throughout the mostly Europe, North, South America and other places, um, as I say, for more than 40 years. In your writing, I found the greatest gift we can give is the purity of our attention. Can you tell us more about what you mean by that? Essentially, I'm you're present with me now and I'm present with you. We're, we're listening to each other. We're giving attention to each other. At the same time, we're giving attention to ourselves. The purity of our attention has to do with there's a level of awareness in us that's not based in our ego identity and our sense of separate self and, and patterns of self-protection, self-behavior, self-importance, but really that I've become aware or that there is an awareness that allows us to see the, our egos, to see the patterns of how we separate from others, how we create warfare in our own minds. And so it's the quality, the purity of our ability to witness ourselves with love and compassion and gentle curiosity and to slowly but surely release identification with the things that we become aware of about ourselves and simultaneously that means that as I listen to you there are fewer and fewer filters between me and you. Um, filters of my self-importance or filters of my background, my nationality, my age, my gender um, my needs, my fears. And so that as attention, as awareness gets more and more pure, that gift which frees our, us, us within ourselves from our own mind-made suffering also liberates us into deep, deep connection and presencing with each other. And when we're in that kind of deep presence and presencing with each other, then what we begin to discover is that we, 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 we live in a shared heart. Deep down underneath most of our self-protection and fear, there is a love that has always been here, is calling all of us, and we start to rest in it more. And so that is the, the blessing and the gift of an ever-deepening purity of attention. And how do we begin to do that? Like, I know you've probably had many decades of going through this practice, but I imagine there's some people listening that are thinking, you know what, that all sounds fine and wonderful, but where they're sitting right now, they're unable to give themselves that piece of self-love or even maybe share that love with other people in their relationships in their life. Well, I understand that very deeply, and I really appreciate 
the compassion with which you are representing probably a large part of our audience. Um, well, first of all, remembering that this is a journey and that I'm speaking to the journey from this point in my life, I'm actually 72, um, and that I've been giving my life to waking up and becoming conscious of what I do to close my heart, of what I do to separate from others in ways that are divisive as opposed to truly being an individual, because as individuals we are quite distinct. It's when we confuse being individuals and start acting in a very separating individualistic way, and we're not conscious of it, that all the suffering in our lives and in the lives of, of human beings everywhere begins to happen. So the how is, first of all, you hear something like this, and then you feel it. There's something you feel if you tune into someone like the Dalai Lama or listen to him speak. There's something you feel when you when you read the Gospels, and, and you're not reading them as a religious person, but as a as a person listening to why this is such a message for everyone. Um, there's something that we feel, and when you begin to feel it, and you begin to desire it, usually the way we start is because we all want love. We, there's nothing more wonderful in life than learning to love and be loved, and we all end up damaging love, hurting love, falling out of love, injuring each other, and we suffer. And if you start to realize, I'm in pain, and I don't want to be in pain, then the process begins of, well, if you're in pain, it's not because of what someone else did. It's because how you reacted to what they did. If, for example, there's no problem about getting older, except for the stories, the beliefs, the fictions you tell yourself about getting older. The body doesn't get older. The body doesn't know it gets older. Um, and so it is that suffering. And on the other side, it's being inspired. So you read something and it makes you cry with this kind of recognition. You hear about someone that's acted without self-interest, you know, with real courage, with real bravery, and something inside of us just vibrates with a recognition of, yes, that's, that's a truth we all understand. That's a, a beauty in the human soul we all understand. And so the desire starts, the yearning is there. We all have that yearning, but we have to hurt ourselves in some ways, out of ignorance, out of not understanding. We, we don't evolve into our individuality, into our separate self, without lots of mistakes and often lots of trauma, and we're the product of the home environments we're from, which in turn are influenced by the social and cultural environments and the time, and the place where you're born. I mean, imagine being born in Syria in the last 20 years and suddenly finding yourself a refugee living with barely anything. or You may have had a PhD, you, you, you know, and, and now you can barely find food. You, you don't know how to find your children. And this is all because of the human mind. We call it political and all of that. But you begin to say, wait a minute, this isn't truly what we are here for, is it? And then you begin the journey. Mm-hmm. You say that emotions and feelings are two different things. Can you tell us more about what you mean by that? Ah, well, that's a, thank you. That's really an important differentiation. I think most of the time we use the word feelings and emotions interchangeably, and we're not really clear. I don't even think in, in, in the psychological research that I um, continue to look at 
in the medical research of the brain that, that even in those scientific circles, there is actually a distinction between feeling as a mode of consciousness that we is operating only in the present moment and thinking as a very distinct mode of consciousness that actually, for the most part, doesn't operate in the present moment. It's, it's, we have to think about what will be based upon remembering what was. We have to make representations of people and things and of ourselves and then judge that, evaluate that, and so forth. And so when the mind starts down a path of thinking and making judgments, and the judgments result in you feeling depressed, that kind of depressive reaction to your own self-judgment is to me an emotion. If, on the other hand, you're looking at someone else and looking at their behavior through the particular a particular filter in yourself and you're saying, he doesn't care about me or she she isn't you know really interested or any make any kind of judgment of another person in that moment you'll feel maybe resentfulness or bitterness or anger and so those are things i call emotions if it's created by your thinking by something you're believing whether and, and of course beliefs you can never prove a belief is true a, a belief is either useful like the belief that uh, the world is round. Uh, it's actually not exactly round, but good enough. Um, there are many, 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 many fictions we human beings are geniuses at, at, at creating for ourselves. And some of them are very personal, like my mother didn't care about me or my father abandoned us. Um, and of course, that's one way to speak about circumstances. But if you speak that way, you will be angry. You will be sad. You will be bitter. That's in the emotional world. The feeling world is the ability to feel those emotions, but it also means sensations. It also means that the deep currents of aliveness in the body are felt and sensed. In the present moment, sensing and feeling, are never they never stop. It's like weather constantly changing. What stops it is when you say, I don't want to feel this. This is the wrong feeling. When you make a judgment of your own sensations, when you generate... Uh, emotions like anger through your own thinking. So the emotional world is mind-made or a reaction to an image from the past, usually. Um, that's the emotional world in, in my way of making this distinction. But feeling is much more profound, it's much deeper. If I let myself feel my emotions, I will have distance from my emotions. I won't be identified with my emotions. There are certain feelings that just come completely naturally, like when a baby laughs or giggles and we smile, or when the sun is rising, and some days it's just rising because our minds are distracted, but often we just feel, yes, and or at a waterfall, in certain moments in nature. And, and, and when, when someone sees us, and we really feel seen, and when we see someone else and suddenly there's compassion and empathy, those are natural compassion, forgiveness, those are profound virtues and, and, and that we only know through feeling. And it's that distinction says to me, if I'm angry, I have to find out what it was I was telling myself and believing about myself or about someone else or about the circumstances. What those judgments were, what those stories were, that's why I'm angry. Do you feel as though... If 
when you're talking about emotional suffering and talking about essentially what we're creating in those stories within our mind is the root of that often not living in the present moment and not living currently as things are versus thinking about the future or thinking about the past and not exactly identifying with what's actually going on? Well, well exactly. That's, it, it's, you know, the whole, the new wave of, of, of mindfulness, which is um, a way of naming a particular meditative kind of attention where you where you really are not you're really here saying like, what's actually happening now with your attention it can even be a question you, you know it looks as if something terrible is happening between you and someone you care about but if you actually say what's actually happening now and disengage from the the, the memories from the past and uh, take yourself out of the past stop jumping into the future anticipating something wonderful or terrible um, so you move back into your body, back into your sensing, feeling consciousness, back into what I would call the heart as a metaphor for where what we really know with deep feeling. Uh, and <laughs> my dog is barking. That's okay. She, yeah, she, she lives in her world. <laughs> so she reacts to the world that's what she does and no matter how much we tell her not to do it she just does it but that's the truth of people too you can say to people over and over again you know it's it's not what someone else does that is really the problem it's what you do in reaction to it's your reactions that cause it and you're it's because you're not embodied in yourself you're not in the present moment in your body because that's a different kind of awareness it's not awareness based in me you know, the ego, the separate self, um, the one that's afraid he won't be loved or she won't be loved, and, and on and on. You're, you're, you're here in this present moment. And that's why, as you say, living in this present moment, really embodying awareness in this present moment is essential, and it is also the path. Yeah, you, you mentioned something in what I was doing in my research from you, is to enter into a feeling as if it was the first time versus that, familiar assumption that can be like oh here we go again here we go again this is going to happen or the same thing is going to happen over and over so how does somebody do that versus going into the space of this is the cycle this is what always happens to me I'm not surprised that I didn't get the job because I never get the job like how do we go into a cycle of feeling as though we have the hope and we have the perspective of this is the first time and whatever is to become of this is what it was supposed to be. The way that we learn anything is that, is that we, we create a framework in which that learning takes place. If it's conventional or classical education is, or con, as it is taught today, you, know, you, you create a context for learning chemistry. You create, you create a context for learning physics and math and languages. The context for learning about yourself is to realize to start with this one fundamental understanding, there is only this present moment. There is only now. I wrote two books about this. Uh, one's called The Mandala of Being and the other one's called Inside Out Healing. But the essence of those books was to take what for me at that point was 35 years of learning and teaching um, and show people that when you're not 
in the present moment, your mind will take you into the past, into the baseline of memories, and it will select some memory to justify whatever you're feeling or reacting to in the moment. There'll then be stories about yourselves, ways of objectifying yourself. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. Ah, you know, I don't have to listen to them. Any of those kinds of assertions of your own separate self, which which put you in opposition to reality in this moment. Then there's all these judgments about others, other people. And then finally, based on whatever we select from the past to justify this moment that you're reacting in, you're going to anticipate the future with either hope or fear. So those four directions, stories about ourselves, stories about others, it's like you could look at it like a compass or a clock. At one point, like at 9 o'clock, those are stories about you. Cross all the way on the other side at 3 o'clock, those are all the kinds of stories and fictions and judgments about other people. Then, then, then at 6 o'clock on the clock map image, you know, that's your baseline of past memories. That's that's all the stories you've repeated to yourself over and over again in the past, some consciously and some sort of buried there waiting. Um, and then at 12 o'clock, you have the future. And so when you recognize that, then you can do an experiment. And the experiment is simply this. I wonder if whatever I'm feeling right now, I can make believe. I can just do a practice. I've never felt it before. I take it out of time. I take it away from memory, I take it away from the past, and I make believe that this that I'm feeling right now is brand new, this only now, this is a brand new sensation, I've never felt it before. And that brings a different quality of attention, it brings curiosity. If you're a scientist and you want to understand something about the cycle of, of the, the, the funguses that, that, that are harvested by ants in order to develop foods for them, da, da, da. It, you have to watch so carefully. If you want to see what causes a baby's attention to move one way or another way when they're one week old or two days old and then two weeks old and two months, you have to watch with curiosity. You can't watch with a, you know, okay, I know already what it's going to be. You have to, you have to watch with a kind of um, innocence, a newness. And so for this, with exactly that moment, exactly that way, we take this curious, gentle, loving, compassionate attention toward what you're feeling right now, like fear, or like anger, or like aloneness, or like a depression, and you go, wait, what if I'd never felt this before? What is this? And that quality of attention starts to make your emotional state, or that feeling, or that sensation in your body, and instead of it becoming named, and crystallized, it becomes maybe for, it becomes like an energy, it becomes like the weather, it becomes like potential. And, and it's, it, it can move, it can lead you, it can show you things, just the way you would learn something by watching the ants and what they harvest, or how bees function, or um, chromosomes divide in, 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 in the nucleus of cells and something. All the, from everything that we've learned with our scientific curiosity, we become almost scientifically, but compassionately, lovingly, gently curious about our experience in this moment. And so we bring that quality of curious, gentle, compassionate, loving attention to a feeling. 
as if I've never felt it before. And then we let it show us what it is, however that unfolds. And things move. You're not, you don't then do the things you said. You don't say, well, this has happened before, and, you know, so-and-so should have done this, and, I, you know, now I have to go back to work anyway. It, you, you have to just, that's what your mind does, which takes you away from the direct experience of what you feel. And that way, by, by running away from what you're actually feeling to what your mind is interpreting the feeling to be based on the past, you, you, you're never present and you get lost in the same recurrent emotional patterns. So that curiosity, that's the beginning point. It's a, it's a practice. It's an adventure. It's, it's a discovery process. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful perspective. Why do we struggle with that, though, right? Like, why that all, like, it's so refreshing, and I'm just closing my eyes and just listening and, and thinking about how that's such a refreshing way to look at all of it. But I can't help but think to myself, but why do so many of us struggle to do that? I've given that so much thought because... In a sense, the question you're asking right now is the question that's being asked by all the people I have ever worked with um, over these 40-something years. And my understanding has gradually deepened. My capacity to communicate about it has become simpler and more direct. But they're all asking that question. But but how did I get here? Why is it that something is as obvious as what I'm describing now, which is there is only now. And awareness is our instrument for relationship with the, the now. And, and if you're going to do an experiment with awareness, and make believe it is awareness as opposed to memory. Make believe you've never felt it before and start to explore your feelings. Start to explore your emotions. Don't be the victim of the emotions. And as soon as you run away from a, a feeling, because it's, it's hard, it's scary, it's lonely, you'll start thinking and then once you start thinking you'll generate emotions and attitudes of defensiveness or indifference or but but it's all self-justification defense and and then you'll be lost in 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 all these rabbit holes like alice in wonderland when she goes down as the rabbit hole into you just get lost into these all these imaginary worlds and you don't know they're imaginary because you believe them and the answer to why is because when we're little babies and we don't, and, and you know, we're like seven days old. We don't have inside and outside and up and down. We don't have words. We don't have me and you. We don't have any of that. But when we develop that, which we have to, you and I can't have this conversation if we didn't develop a separate self and if we didn't use to learn to use words which are just representations of things. They're not the actual thing ever. Um, and and. And so we go through a stage of development that isolates us in this thing called me, the ego, and then most of us live there for the rest of our lives. And we never realize, well, wait a minute. If I'm skiing and my ego's there when I'm skiing, I don't ski well. If I'm dancing and my ego's there looking at, am I dancing well? Am I dancing not well? Could I do, you you don't, there's no fluidness in your dancing. If you're making love and you're thinking, Oh, well, you know, is this the way I should be feeling? And oh, well, what should I do now? You know, you want to, you want to forget yourself. So it's, the surfer has to forget themselves to surf really well. The Olympic athlete has to forget themselves. But it's a very special kind of forgetting. It's forgetting after profound training. And when you start to journey the way I am talking about, you will begin to forget yourself. But what will be there 
will be awareness and presence and feeling and perception and colors and light and it will all be alive it will be pulsing with an inner life and you have to go through a period where everything is separate you're separate even in yourself you believe all that and that many of us don't ever get past that and you can mm -hmm. and beautifully beautifully past that and that's at the root of all the deep spiritual traditions and deep philosophies and the core of all the religions is an experience where you become one with source. Mm. It's it's interesting. I feel like this ties into a lot of the listeners, which is we do have a lot of competitive and professional athletes who listen to the podcast. And Richard, the question I have is for somebody that's listening that falls into that camp, what they may argue is, well, when I go up to compete, I have to think that I'm the best. I have to have the confidence as if I've already won. I have to stand up in that position as if I'm already um, on the top. And what I'm hearing you say is that that's not the case. And that's not the perspective that leads to success. So what would you say as an argument to somebody who stands in the belief that I just shared? Well, they can stand in that belief until the moment they're actually competing. And if they're still in that belief, I'm the best, I can be the best, as they're actually competing, that slight way of objectifying themselves in the now, in the now of competition will get in the way. No, it has to drop. It truly has to drop. So everything that leads to that moment, the intentionality to be the best, the intentionality to 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 operate at your best, which I certainly identify with. I set lots of goals for myself. Um, I have a rich background in mountaineering, rock climbing, um, and, and, and a whole lot of other very wonderful things um, with my body. Uh, I was not competing in the world stage ever, never at that level, but that's not the point. I was always finding my personal bests again and again. But what I learned also was at the moment of actually living it, it lives me. And I think every one of the people you're talking about knows that one of the real reasons we love to ski and surf and dance, and do extreme sports, or write poetry, or paint, is the moment when the experience lives you. And you can practice and practice and practice and have your goal set your intention have incredible commitment and determination but none of that's actually any fun until those moments where the experience lives you is that when we start getting out of the way exactly we've prepared ourselves we've trained ourselves we've given our body consciousness our body intelligence every opportunity to learn from our minds and to teach our minds what's possible for the body up to a point and then we get out of the way did you did you watch the the film um free solo i did Alex Hamel's yes. ascent of, well i climbed in yosemite i'd actually climbed the front face of half dome and, but i never did i never did el capitan that was back in the 70s um but but the point is, that level of concentration and focus, he knew he wasn't ready many, many times. He practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. Every single, he had a notebook for every move on that wall. 
every single move. And the ones that were extremely difficult, he went at it again and again and again. But at the moment, he finally put on just his clothes and his chalk bag and his shoes and left. There was no room to have fear, to dwell on fear, to even think about anything except this breath. And it was living him on and off and on and off. And, and pretty much for, for the three hours, less than four hours it took him to do that. And this is the, the most popular documentary ever. And, and not everybody that go, went to, I've seen it three or four times, but people who have gone to see it are not rock climbers or mountaineers. They're, they may or may not even push themselves very far in, in any particular sport. But as, as far as you want to push yourself, and there still comes the moment that if that the, all the pushing stops and the being takes over. And if that could then generalize to my Olympic training is, I don't want to ever close my heart. I don't want to get self-involved. I had a point where I had couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair, wheelchairs I, at airports always. I just couldn't do it. Um, and I tried healing myself in a number of different body work types of processes in yoga and restorative yoga and therapy. And, but in, in the end, it really required a hip replacement. But the path before I did the hip replacement was no matter how much I've lost so much of my ability to do the things I used to do, I'm not going to close my heart. I'm not going to become self-important. And that has been the core of my practice. And to not become self-important, I have to recognize what I'm telling myself. And as I recognize what I'm telling myself, I realize it's just a story about me or someone else from the past about the future. It's not now, not this immediate now. And there you are. Mm -hmm. You begin to forget yourself and become just awareness, embodied awareness, sensing, feeling, alive. And then you know that there's something wonderful at the heart of it all. Something we can call love or source, but it's there and it's been wanting us, calling to us, inviting us. And if you do it through competitive athleticism, it's beautiful. If you do it through, at any level you do it. If you do it through music and performing and disappearing into your voice when you're singing, if you do it with a guitar or a piano, Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But finally, do it with yourself. Digest yourself. Take away this part of you that's so self-involved. Don't do everything you're doing for an Ironman competition in self-involvement. Let it go. Let it belong to life. Let it be your way of celebrating the gift of embodiment. And get yourself out of the way so love can be there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's just so much beauty in what you're sharing there. It kind of leads into what I was thinking of talking about next. And that was your point about what dreams do for us mm -hmm. in terms of the ego and how our ego maybe is unable to see things in our conscious awake state, but perhaps dreams are inviting us to... Um, revisit things from a subconscious level. So I'm interested in hearing your perspective on dream interpretation and how we can implement that. Okay, so when you're on a journey, like we've been talking about, there are always times when something happens that you didn't expect. The bicycle breaks when you didn't expect it to. And you can say those things are accidents, coincidence, or you can, or you can give meaning to them. And sometimes if you give meaning to these these occurrences that don't seem to be all that important, you begin to realize that actually some of them are very important. 
Um, and, and some of the, like you're thinking something and you go, you don't know. I once asked myself, if there's really a God, I had been throwing pebbles at a stick that was, I was sitting on the ground in the desert and, and I was throwing little pebbles at a stick about, oh, 12 feet away. And, and I never hit the stick. And, and I was in a really deep, dark place inside myself. And, and, I, and I just, and, and I was in my 20s and I said to myself, if, if there is really a deeper source, if there's a God, I'll hit that stick within the next three pebbles. And I threw the first pebble and it landed plop on that stick. Just, and the stick was tiny. I mean, I'm talking about like, uh, you know, two inches long and much, half the, the diameter of a pencil. And, and my pebbles were you know, just little pebbles, not rocks. I just and, and so there's moments when the world talks to you, but they also, those are kind of waking dreams. And, and you can start to live almost everything as a waking dream. You can start to realize if you're sitting there in an argument with somebody else and it were a, a, a dream, you'd say, I, I wonder who I'm arguing with. I wonder what part of myself that man is or that woman is. And, and I wonder what part of me is the one that's arguing. And, and, and then likewise, at night, when we go into the dream state, in my life, at stages of my life where I didn't understand really what was happening to me, and I may have not even understood that I didn't understand, along would come a dream. And the dream would give me an opportunity to look at myself through the dream's eyes. And some of those dreams were so life-changing. I mean, they really changed the way I understood myself, changed the way I thought, changed. And some of them I've been growing into. Some of those dreams were 40 years ago, and I'm still living ever more deeply into them. Some of them are just that happened this week. And when I wake up out of the dream, I ask myself, if I hadn't had that dream, what would I not be conscious of? What would I not be able to let myself feel or think about or associate to or reframe things in a different way? And as soon as I ask those kinds of questions, I start on a journey. And it doesn't matter whether I interpret the dream correctly or not for myself or for anyone else. All that matters is that you start to look in a different way because as soon as you look differently, you become different. If you look in the same way, you become the same you. And so dreams help us see. Not every dream. I mean, God, when I'd go backpacking the first night out on a thin pad after carrying a lot of weight, I would be dreaming all night long, just scattered, crazy dreams. It was like my body saying, well, I feel pretty scattered and crazy right now and all this discomfort and change. And then after a few days, my body gets used to it, different dreams would come. Dreams have been my guide in that way. And by learning to be an interpreter of my own dreams, and because I've listened to thousands of dreams over the years of other people's, you know, people in my programs, and, um, people that are my clients, I develop a particular facility with dreams that's mine. But it, it's like how somebody decides what works for them that gets them at their peak. And whether it's in athletics or whether it's in presencing with someone else, whether it's in counseling someone else. Dreams are just another way of seeing yourself. And if you really take advantage of them, they're, they've been essential to many, many cultures, maybe it, it, some segments of all cultures throughout as much as we know of human history. Um, clearly, it's a way that we, we learn about our emotional world and even about dimensions of ourselves that we don't even know about yet. 
In terms of that interpretation or in terms of developing that awareness, would you say that there's power behind keeping something like a dream journal or that there would be other tools that would be beneficial with that whole process? Yeah, I think when a person makes a commitment to start to develop themselves in consciousness, and then if they make that in particular because they want to learn how to love love within themselves, with themselves, and with others, then everything you do that we've talked about, meditation practice, mindfulness practice, working with your voice, and keeping a dream journal is really helpful. It's when you keep a dream journal because you want to figure yourself out because then you feel like you'll get the right answers and you'll do the right things, where the underlying insecurity or fear is not conscious in the intention to keep the dream journal, that the dream journal isn't as helpful. It's when you really just want to see and explore and discover yourself. And so you journey, we talked a while about back about how you take awareness and you journey into your own feelings or emotions as if you've never been there for the first time, and it opens all kinds of doors. It lets this stuck energy inside of us start to flow, this congested um, energy. It starts to move and flow. And the same thing when you, when you explore with dreams. It's just a way of letting your psychical abilities move and flow. And it's not an end in itself. It's part of the path. Interesting. Now, let's talk about your books I know that you, I think you have seven, correct? Yes, I do. Okay, let's talk more about them. I would love to hear about them and um, yeah, maybe just a couple sentences about each of them in case somebody listening is interested in picking those up. Someone told me yesterday, literally, that they, they, they'd flown all the way to the East Coast from Vancouver, I, I guess to Toronto from Vancouver, devouring my book, The Black Butterfly. I wrote The Black Butterfly in 90 days in 1986. It was... It, it gets that name from an experience I had when I was just a few days after 30 years old. And, and um, it describes the experience of, of the first profound time my consciousness shifted and changed in a completely natural way or an ex- and a quite unexpected way. And, and so the book takes its title from that. That was not my first book. It was my third. So all of my books chronicle the journey of conscious transformation, the journey of awakening, and the journey of, of what it means to be part of the ceaseless process of growing up, the endless process. Because, you know, often people on a consciousness path, they've heard words like enlightenment. They're seeking kind of enlightenment. They want to do long, long meditation retreats, retreats and get enlightened. And, of course, there are these experiences, awakening experiences. I've had some of those and, and many other smaller ones, and I've helped people navigate them their way through those things. But the much more important process is the insight that grows from them being applied. So my books chronicle not only some of those experiences, but what it was like to teach people how I was learning, what transformation looks like, what, what, is, what is it a dream worthy of of us on planet Earth, us human beings. How do we find our way to it? How do we get lost? Because if you really want to learn to love, or to love love, the first thing you're going to begin to, to really have to be conscious of is how, the, how do you close your heart? How do you weaken the, most, the natural movement of love that is at the heart of the universe? So the, each book is a progression of understanding. Now, the first one was called The I That Is We, capital I, like the I am. 
And it, it was about the fact that in, in truth, there's no such thing as a separate person. Um, and, and what is it like when that you have that experience and you begin to realize that we're so deeply interconnected that we can fall closer and closer to ourselves and then meet each other more and more profoundly. The second book was called How Shall I Live? I was really still so close to the, the medicine side of myself that when I wrote that book, it was really about when someone has a health crisis, how they can use it not only for healing but for transformation. We don't know whether something can be cured, but we know that there's a healing process in everything. You, you, you may die of cancer and go through profound psychological and spiritual emotional healing. You know, you can go through a long period of unwellness and come out the, the other side of it more capable of love, more capable of enjoying life, even though your body will never, ever again be able to do what it did before, maybe. Uh, and sometimes the body gets restored. I was very ill a couple of times in my life and came back and got even more capable. The body gets more intelligent as we get older, more remarkably attuned to things. So all of the books are a progression through that journey in our bodies and in our relationships, primarily in our relationships when we want to live unconsciously and we want to make a difference for our world. Do you envision writing any more? Ah, well, I have part of my practice is to write poetry, so maybe well, three, four times a month, sometimes depending on the, the mood, the energy of a particular period in my life, I might write two or three poems a day, but I don't publish them. And the next time I write, if I think that I can be as lyrical as some of the poems or as lyrical as my singing practice, if I can do it playfully, like the black butterfly that came out in 90 days, the mandala of being summarizes my lifetime of work. I, and, and that took five years of all my free time. If that's what the next writing is about, I doubt it. But if, but if it can come out kind of play lyrically and sweetly from my heart, at this stage of my life where, where I'm living things that are deeper than I ever even knew could possibly happen, in particularly in our marriage. Um, I, I, as I said to my wife half a year ago, I could never have dreamed you. And she looked at me and said, yep, yeah, but here I am. Yet here I am. And we left. But it's simply true. I could not have dreamed the levels of intimacy and openness and flow between two people that we keep living. Um, and, that, that, and the commitment is to love love, not to love each other. Uh, and the love of each other just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and I don't see any limit to that whatsoever. So I might write about that. Mm -hmm. But you know, when, when are you ever ready on a journey that never ends? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would you say are the keys that have been able to make your love deepen? Oh. It's funny, in, in this world or kind of in the news and the way that we see news presented in, in present day, it's always like the five tips to a successful marriage or it would be manufactured in a way that would want to um, package it into just a few things. But I'm sure that there's probably a multitude or many different dimensions that you guys have went through together as a relationship. Yes, it's true. We had very, Kathy has three, had three daughters, has three daughters and co-parented three other stepchildren from a previous marriage. She raised six kids by herself for years uh, on, you know, half parenting 
the three and, and co-parenting hers. And, and at the same time, she was learning through shamanic journeying and Buddhist meditation practices and other another key teacher in her life, um, learning how to journey into herself. I, through a very different path, also learned to journey into myself. Um, and when you learn to journey into yourself, the first thing you know is that nobody out there is responsible for my unhappiness, my anger. Nobody out there is the source of my happiness. I am 100% responsible for my reactions. So the, the keys to our relationship is that I know that if she gets triggered by something I do, she processes it in herself to find out how she got triggered. Then she'll share with me her journey. If I get triggered, you know, coming into her life with, with her daughters was not an easy process. There's still, there's still more and more to learn about how our relationship and, and that profound relationship she has with her children, how those two slowly wed, them, wed each other over the years. Um, but I'm 100% responsible for my reactions. You're, you know, if you're listening out there, your husband isn't responsible for your reactions. Your wife isn't responsible for your actions. Your employer isn't responsible for your actions. Donald Trump isn't responsible for your actions if you mm -hmm. like him or don't like him. Your, the politicians aren't responsible. The police aren't responsible. Race is not responsible. Gender is not responsible. Your nationality is not responsible for your pride or judgment or fears. That's all your mind. And if you want to love profoundly with another human being, and frankly, there is no better, more enriching thing to live and to live for, then you have to take responsibility for your reactions. And that takes us back to the work we talked about earlier, learning how to journey with your feelings, to taste them as if it's the first time, to sense them, learning how to journey with your thoughts, to take yourself out of the me stories and the you stories and the past stories and the future stories and start again now because there is only now, to wake up and build the muscle of your aware self, your witnessing self, um, have all your goals you want, have all the goals you want, and at the same time, make sure those goals are worthy of you. Uh, and that's all developmental. The goals that are worthy of us when we're in our 20s are different when they're in our 50s, and and so forth. And, and so what makes love keep growing is, it's not a question in my mind, am I safe with her because she's, she's reliable, or am she safe with me? It is, am I going to trust love with this person? Am I going to love love with this person? unconditionally, not love her unconditionally, love love with her unconditionally. It, that doesn't mean we're meant to be married. It doesn't mean we're meant to be profoundly intimate. It doesn't mean we're meant to dive into lovemaking in ways that keep taking us to places you can't have known could were even possible because it's a shared heart and it's a shared body. And it, you know, every relationship has its own specific context and structure. But every relationship gets better when loving love is why you're living your life, why you want to be aware, why you, want, you work with your dreams, why you push your limits on, in the mountains or in a track or anywhere else. Because ultimately it's helping you develop the strength to really love love. And then, then, then the marriage falls into place. No, they're honesty, complete honesty. Absolutely showing up in honesty. Um, it's, 
and I, I understand all the subtle arguments about when to be honest or not to be honest and blah, blah, blah. But I'm talking about if you can't be totally honest with yourself, if you can't find deeper and deeper levels of self-deception or self-hiding, then those will play out in your relationships. So you, you have to go first deeply, deeply, deeply into yourself because you want to go into yourself in order to become a vehicle for love. You want to, what, what else would you want to go deeply into yourself for, really? And if what you love is science, then you'll go into that. But at least if you truly love science, you'll know that science is here to help us become obedient to nature, not to dom dominate nature. Applied science is you know, both wonderful and a disaster. Global warming is the achievements of science as much as everything else. And, and environmental destruction, we, if we're going to terraform the earth, we have to realize how brilliant nature already is and that our scientific pursuits are to make us consciously understand nature's brilliance, mm -hmm. nature's genius. Then, then it will be obvious we want to serve nature's genius, but we're the only creatures we've ever known of that could do that consciously. And on the way there, we can completely mess up nature as we are. Does that scare you? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any hope? There's always hope. But I'll tell you right now, for me, if people have heard what I'm talking about and realize you, you can't save the world, but you can save yourself, you can't love everyone, but you can love someone. And the deeper you love that someone is because the depth to which you've gotten to know yourself will change every relationship. I have hope that that's possible. It's not just possible. I know it's true because I, I've worked with thousands of people and I feel what happens. But if you ask me, will we be able to reverse soil degradation, soil uh, loss of life in our soils? Will we stop the... the, the, the gigantic wave of autism, one in 38 births in the United States as of now is born on the autistic spectrum, which is the highest in the world. Uh, are we going to deal with the incredible refugee and immigration processes and disruption of food sources due to global warming? I don't have much hope for us over the next 50 to 200 years. No, I, I absolutely know that it's nonsense to think we're going to go into space and, and terraform Mars or some other place. Um, we will go into space, but by the time we're doing that, it, there may not be a whole lot of life on Earth that, that we will recognize, uh, and the society that, without the love of love with each other, without that consciousness operating inside of ourselves, no, I don't have much hope for us collectively. But for individuals on the journey, absolutely. For what you can do in your home, with your children, with your husband, your wife, your partner, yeah. I have not only hope, but I'm, I'm just filled with joy. Mm, amazing. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to share all of the lovely things that you did in today's conversation, Richard. Now, if somebody wants to check out more of your stuff, uh, what would be the best way to connect with you? Well, the website is www.richardmoss.com. I have my own YouTube channel. About once a month, I add a, a short, let's say under 12 minutes to try to I'm not good at getting down to one minute or two minutes because it's crazy, um, which seems to be most people's attention span in social media. But um, I have a YouTube channel between my website, the YouTube channel, 
and any of my books, most of them, the last two are still in print, uh, Inside Out Healing and Mandala Being, the others are still findable over Amazon. Um, people just, you know, if they've resonated, that's that's the way to ne- take the next step. You can find out the things Kathy and I are doing with couples, the individuals that, that do retreats with, with me and with us sometimes, the retreats that I'm doing in Europe and the U.S. We have a, we're starting our new our new retreat center, and, and even though we live in Boulder, we'll be we're developing it in uh, North Carolina. It's called Moon Lake, and um, it, it's a place I've been working for a while. But now we're going to be there regularly. Um, and at this stage of our lives, we really we love the big retreats when they happen in Europe and a few other places. But we really love sitting down with five couples or sitting down with fourteen, fifteen, sixteen people or individuals. And it's that's how that's about a summary of where things are right now. Mm, amazing, amazing, Richard. So the last question, which is the way we end every podcast, is how would you like to be remembered? Ah, uh, well, there's a big smile in me. I'd like to think everybody who who knows me or knew me well enough is, is just smiling when I go and will keep on smiling in their hearts and and will take the same journey I uh, that will take their version of this infinite play that I'm describing hmm. amazing amazing well thank you again Richard I uh, will be sure to send over the link once everything is live here but again thanks for coming on and this was a really great conversation so thank you thank you Angela it was a pleasure for me all right have yourself a great day All right. Bye. Bye. There we go, guys. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Transform Your Life podcast. I am so, so grateful for each and every one of you. I love that you guys come and hang out with me every Thursday. You may have noticed recently that I've had a few of these conversations that have been talking about soul stuff that have been diving in a little bit more to spirituality, a little more to what's going on neurologically within the brain. And I've just really found myself compelled in that direction lately. I found myself being very interested in understanding the mind and understanding the soul in a way that expands beyond the body and expands beyond um, fat loss and muscle gain. So hope you guys are enjoying these guests and enjoying the well-rounded approach that I've been trying to take in terms of my evolution and hopefully your evolution as an individual as well. So thanks for joining me, guys. I will catch you guys next week. As for now, bye. Guys, I'm on a really big mission here and I want to transform 1 million lives, but I need your help. I can't do it alone. I want you to take this episode, share it with just one person. Maybe it's a friend or a family member or maybe a coworker, just one person who could really benefit from the information in this week's episode or perhaps a previous episode. That is how we create impact. That is how we get this movement going. That's how we take people from feeling tired and just not having a fulfilled life and we put them into fulfilling their full potential. So I challenge you guys to share this with just one person. It would mean the world to me. And as always, head on over to iTunes, subscribe so that you never miss an episode. They come out every single Thursday. That is my commitment to all of you guys so that you guys can continually grow, expand, and fulfill your full potential. Have a great week. We'll catch you next time. Lots of love. Ange.